Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. In our hyper-partisan and over-politicized culture, we're always quick and anxious to talk about DACA, Dreamers, immigration, deportation, refugees, etc. Even the most well-meaning stories are often lost in the weeds of policy and politics. What we often forget or can't personally understand is that all of this is about people, about kids who are caught up in events they can't control and getting impressions of how they're accepted or not and how they're treated, which will shape how they grow up and what they'll always believe about this country. Even in the best of environments, refugee resettlement is hard work. Although, as my guest Helen Thorpe shows us, it can often be filled with joy. Helen Thorpe has been a staff writer for the New York Observer, the New Yorker, and Texas Monthly. She's written freelance stories for the New York Times and Slate. Her radio stories have appeared on This American Life and Soundprint. And she's the author of the book, The Newcomers, Finding Refuge, Friendship, and Hope in an American Classroom. It is my pleasure to welcome Helen Thorpe to the program. Helen, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. A delight to have you here. First of all, tell us about the decision and how it evolved to spend this time, this year, in South High School in Denver. You know, my own family immigrated to this country. My parents are both Irish, grew up in Ireland, and and brought me here as a baby. And um, I have always been interested in stories that people will tell if they've changed countries about where they used to live and why they had to leave. Um, so I was reading all the stories in the news about refugees displaced all around the world. And I asked myself, how does that intersect with my own community where I live? And here in Denver, Colorado, we have a high school that has particular expertise in welcoming teenaged refugees because they've been doing it for two decades. Um, so I went to that high school and approached the principal and she had read an earlier book I'd written about undocumented students. So she welcomed me into the school saying, I I know your other book, you can, you know, spend as much time here as you want. And so I was given the really unusual opportunity to be inside an English language acquisition classroom for a, a full year which was amazing. These were students from everywhere. They were from Syria, from Iraq, from Dominican Republic. Talk about that. So over the course of the year, as you describe, I watched the teacher collect students. His kids did not all arrive on the first day of school because they were, um, you know, he was sent the kids who have just gotten to the United States and their families might arrive all throughout the calendar year. But by the end of the year, he had collected a group of 22 kids who spoke 14 languages and used five different alphabets. And they also perfectly mirrored the global refugee crisis. If there was a country producing refugees, that place sent someone to this teacher during the school year I was there. Um, and that was an incredible thing to, to slowly you know, understand because it, it gave me a sense of the whole crisis, but at a human scale with you know, an individual whose story I could understand. So it was a way to understand what was happening in the world at large, but at a personal level. Mm -hmm. As you looked at these kids as they came in the classroom, talk about the things about them that were universal, those things that that all the kids seemed to possess, whether they were from Syria or the Dominican Republic or Iraq or wherever they were from. Well, the first thing that struck me was that each of them arrived terrified and lonely Uh, because they felt great questions about whether they were going to belong or be accepted or fit in. You know, and all of us have had those 
sorts of experiences, but the loneliness of not knowing the language here, the loneliness of being the only kid in the room who spoke Vietnamese or the only kid in the room who spoke Tigrinya or, you know, the only kid in the room who spoke Swahili or Arabic and not being able to talk with classmates or even communicate easily with the teacher. The kids were just so isolated Um, and they desperately wanted to communicate with one another. And one amazing thing was, you know, teenagers, of course, they're incredibly social and it matters a lot to them who their classmates are and how they get along and how they're viewed. And that was playing out in the room just uh, with all of the usual complications kind of times 10 because of these language barriers. But the kids were quickly figuring out that they could text one another through the Google Translate app on their phones. Um, uh, And so they were figuring out ways to flirt or invite each other over on sleepovers or all the things that teenagers do, um, you know, amazingly, or or talk about shoes or, or movies that they liked. They were texting about these things all the time. And then slowly they, you know, the teacher was masterful at, helping all of them acquire the basic level English, you know, and so by the end of the year, they were even able to communicate in English. That was an amazing thing to witness happen. Talk about their openness to each other and their curiosity about each other. Yeah. I remember one day I, so to, to just even explain my presence in the room to them, to say, I'm a journalist, I'm writing a book. I had to hire interpreters and ultimately 14 different interpreters. So I, I did that. I explained myself to each student in their home language in a one-on-one conversation with an interpreter. And I remember being in their classroom one day with an interpreter and speaking to these two sisters from Iraq. They had fled Baghdad during the Iraq war when their dad sided with the U.S. military and was then targeted um, by militia, and um, they fled to what they thought was going to be a safe country, which was Syria, and then fell into the civil war there, which happened soon after they arrived, and then had to, they were double refugees. They had to flee that country as well. Uh, so by the time they arrived in the U.S., they had been wandering around the Middle East seeking a safe home for many years. And um, they were telling me their journey, and I was trying to explain to them as we spoke you know, you're not really alone in this room. There are so many kids in this room with difficult stories. Let me let me tell you about one of your classmates. And there was a young woman from El Salvador sitting nearby. So I said, how about Lisbeth? You know, she is from El Salvador. There was a lot of gangs, and her mother was working as a police officer and had arrested some gang members, and they gave death threats to her mother had to suddenly flee and immigrate to the U.S. for her own, to save her own life. And then the gang members started targeting Lisbeth at age 15. So an uncle put her on a bus by herself. She came to the U.S. on her own with just a younger brother who was 12. And they were arrested at the border and put in federal detention and um, only then released after uh, a, a period of weeks. And they were seeking asylum. They had a legal battle now to see whether they'd be allowed to remain in the U.S. And when I told the two girls from Iraq the story about their classmate from El Salvador, they just lit up their faces. They were so curious. They wanted to know more. And they said they were instantly sympathetic. They they said, 
oh, we thought we were the only ones with a really tough story. We didn't know there were all the other kids in this room had kind of lived through difficult things also. And they, they, you know, immediately wanted to communicate more with her, but they had been kind of trapped in their um, Arabic language bubble while the student from El Salvador was trapped in her Spanish language bubble and they hadn't been able to talk at first. Um, But they were really, really curious about one another. And as soon as they could, as soon as they could figure out some way to um, get basic information back and forth, they would start interacting. Yeah. And what did they come to understand about their level of acceptance or non-acceptance in parts of the broader community? Um, within their high school, which has particular expertise, as I've said, welcoming refugees, there was a great deal of understanding and a, and a really high level of acceptance. But whenever they stepped outside the school, things were much more difficult. So the Iraqi sisters, again, to, to just focus on them for a moment, one of the sisters wore a headscarf, covered her hair, and the other didn't. It turned out I was very confused by that at first and very curious why would only one sister wear a hijab and not the other. But it turned out their mom was Muslim and their father Christian, and they attended Christian services, but also kind of identified as Muslim at the same time, which was very interesting to learn. So for those sisters, when they were out, when they were inside the school, there were many other students wearing headscarves. Um, You know, as I learned from spending time in the hallways, students from Christian countries or Muslim countries often wore headscarves. It was just a sign of respect for God. It didn't necessarily indicate Muslim faith as we imagine that it does. In other parts of the world, people of many different faiths will cover their hair Um, so inside the school, there was a a great understanding of that. And people did not look at Jacqueline wearing the headscarf and immediately assume they knew what religion she was or even, you know, where she was from. But when she stepped outside the school, that headscarf, you know, was misinterpreted all the time on the city buses that she rode from her home to the school. And she got all these comments from people thinking, you know, they would, accuse her of of sympathizing with ISIS or being a terrorist. And this was a terrible misreading and misunderstanding. It was born of, you know, the political rhetoric that we have. But in her case, it was so painful for her to be mistaken for that because she had lost her father after he had sided with the American troops. So she, you know, her family had made this incredible sacrifice in the fight against terrorism. Um, so w- not only was she not sympathetic, she was, she was the opposite of a terrorist. Uh, and she just really felt a great hunger for, to tell her story and to be understood and to have these misconceptions kind of um, alleviated. To what extent did these kids understand, and, and, and maybe this is too broad a question, but to what extent did they understand the broader political context in which they were in, outside the yeah. school and in the larger community? What I came to see was they had a very sophisticated understanding of um, – the ways in which they were misunderstood. So they were bumping into certain kinds of prejudice all the time. So they could see from firsthand experiences that Americans were very prone to misread a headscarf, 
to make assumptions about anybody who wore a headscarf, uh, they would immediately think that person was from the Middle East. Well, the person might be actually from Bangladesh or another part of, you know, Southeast Asia. And, and um, so they had a great uh, sophisticated sense of where we got things wrong, but it was very difficult for them to follow our political calendar. In particular, primaries were just befuddling. Like the whole idea of 50 states voting at different times was just really super confusing and, and kind of unfathomable for them. So they, they kept making the mistake of thinking the presidential election was over. And when a given candidate won one state, they thought the whole, the whole national election might be done. And then, you know, a, a week or two later, they'd hear about more election results and they'd be like, wait, didn't we already vote? You know, so uh, getting the primary calendar and the idea of a general election, like clear in their minds, you know, that that was tough. In seeing all of this, were they purely reflective of their parents and what they experienced at home, or were they developing attitudes and ideas that were indigenous to them? I think the students, I was essentially watching them in transition. So when they first arrive here, they and their parents, I think, have like a totally congruous cultural outlook um, shared from you know, the years that they spent in their home country and maybe a country where they sought refuge before they made it here. Um, but then once they arrived here, because of their chance to learn English in, in a high school and their ability to rub shoulders and, and befriend other students from all around the world, the students started to acclimate and acculturate and acclimatize much faster than their parents. Their parents generally started working right away, but they would find um, menial kinds of work, unskilled jobs where they didn't really have to know English. So the parents of the students in this classroom were doing things like working in meat processing plants, working as maids, working as janitors. Um, and they were not um, successfully acquiring English at the same rate mm -hmm. as their kids. And so pretty quickly, the, the kids began to acquire, you know, a more American identity, um, a, a cultural outlook, like uh, more in sync with the other students at their high school. And they began kind of diverging from their parents and even acting as their parents' translators in time. Was there a degree to which any of them were, were permanently scarred by the experiences they had gone through in their home countries before uh, coming to the U.S.? So because I was given such extraordinary access to this classroom and because it was filled with students who had had, in many cases, difficult experiences, one of the things I struggled with was how to, how to be a journalist and get the story, but also at the same time, how to be a good person. And I, I just knew it would be wrong to in the middle of their school day, start grilling kids about what have you survived, what have you experienced, and asking detailed questions about things that were bound to be incredibly upsetting. And I struggled with, well, how do I, how do I handle this the right way? And ultimately, I decided I wouldn't interview young students in the middle of their school day. If they indicated they were from a country where I knew war had taken place and they had probably seen very difficult things, 
I would ask if I could visit their home and speak to their parents. I thought the adults in the family were the ones that, who could make the decision if they wanted to share those kinds of stories or not. Um, what I learned over time, spending a full year in the room and getting to know some families on a much deeper level, you know, um, so the, the two young women from Iraq, um, when they were living in Syria, they've seen all kinds of, th- of things. I never quizzed them about it, but I could just feel the impact on them. And I could see, you know, how, how um, traumatic those experiences were by how despondent they would become, become any time the subject of violence in the Middle East came up. And then um, there were two brothers from the Congo. Uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo is actually the country that it has sent the largest numbers of refugees to the U.S. And that's because there's just an ongoing situation on the eastern side of that country where um, after a terrible civil war there, militia groups became rampant and they've just sort of taken over big swaths of the eastern side of that country. And that's the part of the country that's producing refugees. And the Congolese brothers had come from that part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And again, I chose not to quiz the kids about it. I did try interviewing their parents. And what I ran up against was this Congolese sense that you're not supposed to talk about difficulty and you're not supposed to share an emotional burden like that. You're supposed to protect others from, you know, problematic or dark stories. And so they just really wanted to talk about their gratitude about being in the U.S. and how much they appreciated a safe country. And, and it you know, in the end, I decided the right thing to do was honor their culture and let them just share with me what they wanted to share. But to understand what had happened, I I traveled to the Congo to, to see firsthand what was going on there. Why did they have to flee? Um, so I think in the end, I succeeded in getting the story. But I really tried hard to honor the fact that these families were new in the U.S., having an incredible, challenging transition and like not inflict on them my curiosity, but figure out how to get the story by the right means. And what did you learn by going to the Congo that helped you understand these kids? So I traveled to the Congo. I was incredibly fortunate. I found out that um, here in my home state of Colorado, some Air Force instructors were traveling there. And I asked if I could piggyback on their trip, go with them. And because I was with them, they were successful in setting up meetings with different um, United Nations peacekeeping personnel. The Congo, on that side of the Congo, is the, the largest peacekeeping mission in the world. And there are tens of thousands of, of UN personnel, mostly soldiers, they are trying to keep the peace and, and reduce the impact of these militia and trying to demilitarize demilitarize or take weapons back from militia groups. So I got to hear firsthand from the UN personnel about their work, you know, which militia groups concerned them the most and why, what incidents they had seen, how hard it was for them to persuade, you know, once young men had taken up arms and were no longer farming, but were just stealing food from others it was incredibly difficult to persuade them to give up the weapons and go back to farming. And they would get caught up in these, you know, enmities or feuds and um, trying to diffuse that situation. It, it really is a difficult puzzle to, to figure out. And um, by 
by seeing the struggle of the UN personnel and, and hearing more about the conflicts, you know, it, it enabled me. I also actually managed to meet some family members, um, close relatives of the boys in the classroom, their uncle, for example, and one of their first cousins. So I was able to hear from the family members about what life was like in the village. And they were describing how almost it's almost daily that a militia group will swoop down and raid and steal all of the crops that they've been patiently growing, take, take food away from them. You know, it, it's just such a battle to continue just daily life. Um, and uh, after spending time in the Congo, you know, it became very evident, very clear um, what the situation was. I, I also found some research that medical personnel were doing, particularly around, as you were asking about, you know, the traumas that young people experience. And the, the research shows that nine out of 10 teenagers in that part of the Congo, just like the students that I had gotten to know, nine out of 10 teenagers will have witnessed a traumatic incident. Uh, two-thirds of them have seen someone killed in front of them. A third of them have witnessed the act of rape. One-fifth of the teenagers have themselves been abducted by a militia group who will ask them to cook or to clean or to carry things or even, you know, become a child soldier. And so, you know, by the end of the trip and, and looking at the research, it was it was really clear to me sort of what the kids had fled from. And I know that they were carrying difficult psychological burdens, but I think um, I was able to make clear to the reader, you know, some sense of what those burdens would be without asking the students themselves, mm -hmm. um, you know, questions that would be re-traumatizing. Did these students see this transition, this period they were in, as a transition to a new permanent life, or did they have longing or ideas about going back to their home country? That's a great question. You know, I think they saw this as an incredible opportunity. They, they were, it was very clear in their minds uh, what a gift they had been given. They were, you know, um, painfully conscious of the fact that they had left friends and often family members behind in whatever refugee camp they had been, you know, granted permission to leave. So coming here, you know, they knew not to waste one minute in the classroom. They knew to take advantage of um, the school environment they were in. Uh, so they were telling me how thankful they were, you know, to be in a place that was safe, to be in a school with books, to see things like laptop computers, um, you know, to have these teachers devoting themselves to their welfare. Um, so they really wanted to be here and they really wanted to take advantage of the opportunity they'd been given. But at the same time, they felt this very keen sense that a, a really a sense of urgency that they must at some point you know, after, uh, uh, you know, uh, establishing a better life here, they must at some point help everybody else that they had left behind. It's not necessarily that they wanted to go back, but they wanted to help their cousin or their friend or their aunt or their uncle or whomever it was that they had been close to in the refugee settlement. You know, they knew they'd left others behind and they wanted to, to, to figure out ways to send money or send help or bring them here or do something to alleviate the situation of that person they were close to who is still living a much more difficult life that they had left behind. 
Was it a kind of survivor's guilt that was at play? Yes, yes. So um, the two boys from the Congo, Solomon and Methuselah, learned so much in their first year that their teacher recommended they skip forward a full year and a half. So I saw them enter a much higher level English language acquisition class at the beginning of their second year and then transition into mainstream classes halfway through their second year of school. So when they were in their second year of school, I watched them start reading um, Sherman Alexie's book about life on a reservation, the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian. And the main character in that book writes about his um, psychological difficulty, like knowing his school on the reservations inferior, deciding to leave and go to, go to a superior high school that's off the reservation, but it's a largely white high school. And he has this terrible survivor's guilt about leaving behind his friends on the reservation and having a better future himself, but knowing that his friends didn't. And I think all the kids in the room, it was a great book to pick for these kids to read because they identified so strongly with that predicament, knowing they'd gotten out of a certain situation, but all their friends had not. What did this whole experience teach you that you didn't already understand about resiliency in general and the resiliency of young people in particular? I, you know, we have this conversation about refugees as if refugees will be some kind of burden. And I found spending time with these kids, watching the extraordinary growth that they were capable of, it was such an uplifting experience. And I know their teacher and I both felt that we were watching this classroom of kids transform from scared and overwhelmed and fearful at, and silent at the beginning of the year to, by the end of the year, a room filled with teenagers who were bubbling over with, you know, joy and exuberance and happiness and friendliness. It was such a incredibly positive curve. You know, so I found, you know, the experience of watching refugees resettle actually very, um, you know, it filled me with a sense of wonder about the rest of the world, but also just I, I felt very uplifted. For me, it was um, really a joyous thing to watch. So I felt that we just have an incredible misconception. We think of refugees as a burden and actually if you interact with them, the experience that you have is that they are a gift. That was my feeling. That was the teacher's feeling. I know that was the feeling of the volunteers working with these families as well. We thought they were awe-inspiring. Helen Thorpe, the book is The Newcomers, Finding Refuge, Friendship, and Hope in an American Classroom. Helen, I thank you so much for spending time with us. I um, love getting the chance to talk. Thank you for having me. Thank you.